Hi, and welcome to Beyond Cancer, a podcast from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. This is episode five, Stupid Things People Say About Cancer. So today we're gonna talk about what people say to cancer patients, how cancer patients react to what they say, and what cancer patients want other people to say to them, either when they're diagnosed or when they're talking to them about their current status. It's a really interesting topic and it's a really sensitive topic. And today I'm gonna talk with Kim Douglas and Becky Sale and they're gonna help me get through this. Thanks for having us. Very excited to be here. So before we dive into this fun topic, um, what I think is a fun and also serious topic, I just thought we could step back and, and give a little bit of backstory. And so Becky, if you could start and tell us a little bit about how you were diagnosed. Sure, I'm Becky Sale. I'm 28 years old and I've been a patient at Dana-Farber since I was 22. Um, I was diagnosed at the age of 22 with um, aggressive angiomyxoma, also known as AA, not to be confused with Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, it's a very rare sarcoma, pelvic sarcoma, with 250 cases in the world ever. Um, uh, when they found it, it was the size of what they said was the baby's head. And so I had um, three major surgeries because it's the best to closest cure for it is to remove all of it um, without removing a lot of organs. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting journey for me because no doctors really knew what to do with me. Um, and luckily I was relocating to Boston and ended up at Dana-Farber, which is the best thing that could have happened, although they'd only seen two other people with this. Um, but after my three surgeries, when they realized surgery wasn't working, they put me on hormonal suppressants, which I had been on in between surgeries. And now I've been on those for about three years, and that was to keep the tumor stable, which I lived with for a couple years and it was stable. And now at this point, there's no sign of tumor. So I'm being watched and it's great. Um, I was living my, my life four months at a time with scans and now we're, for the first time, going to six months, which is very That's exciting. Awesome. So um, uncertain future, but um, definitely positive. And how about you, Kim? I'm also 28. Um, I was diagnosed in 2012 with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, I did the standard six months ABVD uh, chemotherapy, which ended up not working. So I did the uh, ICE chemo, which is sort of a second line treatment that they do uh, to condition you for a stem cell transplant, which I ended up having. Um, prior to that, actually, the ICE didn't work either, so I did an experimental drug called Brentuximab Vidotin. Um, which worked wonders, had like no side effects, so I was really great. That put me into a deep enough remission that I was able to have an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, then I did a month of proton radiation after that, targeted therapy. Um, and my re-birthday, my third re-birthday was July 8th, a few days ago. So I've been cancer-free for a while. I'm gonna cut in now and I wanna point out the obvious, which is that Kim and Becky have very different cancers and it's very different from my experience as well. I was diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, which is an indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma that is often managed more as a chronic disease. And when I was treated for it, my hair didn't fall out. I worked pretty much all through my six months of chemo and for all intents and purposes, I looked and felt fine and if you didn't ask me, you wouldn't have known that I was a cancer patient. And what I heard at least once during that time was that I, quote, had the good cancer. 
And so I wanted to know if Kim or Becky had ever heard that comment. Had they ever heard that they had the, quote, good cancer? Here's Kim. I definitely got that. Oh, that's the good kind of cancer, though, right? Like, and that's true. It's very treatable. It's highly treatable, but it's, there's no good cancer. But that was, that was kind of a, a good and a bad comment for me because sometimes when people would freak out and I had to deal with their emotions and right. <laughs> make them feel more comfortable, I'd be like, no, don't worry, it's the JV cancer, I'll be fine. <laughs> Even though it's like, well, yeah, but if you're in, in my situation where it was refractory and then I resisted the second line of treatment, like, and my, you know, chances of surviving the transplant were like 50%, like, it's not the good kind of cancer anymore. I'm, I'm in that small percentage of people for whom it's not yeah. so great. I didn't even get, you know, you know, sarcomas are very, very rare, every single sarcoma. So people don't really understand that it is cancer in some sense. I mean, I had, it took me, geez, four years myself to say I have cancer. Yeah. So when the people around me were saying, oh, well, you don't have cancer. Or, oh, it's just a tumor because it's really hard to understand that the way the tumor was and it doesn't metastasize fast enough to get chemo and chemo radiation won't work yeah. people think well that's not cancer but there there are so many cancer patients that don't lose their hair that keep working that go through all the same stuff but look normal and and you wouldn't think they have cancer one common thread of commentary that many survivors hear is advice good advice bad advice advice that runs the gamut Everyone has advice for survivors, including on the most intimate of topics. Here's Kim again. I would have a lot of people giving me advice about yes. fertility and like, oh, well, you should, I know this great fertility doctor, you should really consider <laughs> freezing your eggs and blah, 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 blah. And they would just dump all this on me without knowing that when I went into the hospital, I went into the ER because I was having chest pains and that's when I was diagnosed. I had a tumor the size of a football in my torso wow. and they wouldn't let me go until they put me on chemo. So I was there for several days. It was like, we need to treat you and we need to treat you now. And so we, I didn't even have a chance to have fertility conversations at all. I didn't have a chance to think about any of that before they gave me Lupron and started putting me on chemo and doing everything. So people assume that you have the luxury of right. making decisions and you don't always have the luxury of that or of time. People know that fertility is associated with cancer, I think. It's a common thing some people know. And so like, well, has this affected your ability to have kids? Well, don't worry, you can adopt. And that, like, right. when you have gone through the gamut of emotions to, you know, to get from, when you want kids <laughs> to get from that to adoption is a very long emotional process. Yeah. And it's just, it's just really annoying because it's like, okay, it's not like one plus one is two. Right. You need to understand it's a very hard path. So that was pretty common. Being a little bit older than Kim and Becky and being married with two kids, fertility wasn't an issue for me. No one was coming up to me and telling me to freeze anything. But they were full of advice on what to eat. Have you heard that comment? Have you heard change your diet as, as, a, as a way of, like, that will fix everything? Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the whole, it runs the whole gamut from try eating this food because you'll respond to it better on chemo, you won't feel as mm -hmm. sick. And a lot of that that I got was quite valid. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
but still people were making assumptions about what I would like and what I wouldn't mm -hmm. like. And it's like, I'll wake up the next day and uh, my tastes have changed, you right. know? Like, I have no idea how I'm going to feel. It goes from, from that all the way down to, well, if you just you know, cut this carcinogen out of your diet, you'll right. be cured. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna like cure my cancer by the being a vegetarian. <laughs> like, no. I think it's because it's something you can control, but when I did do things, it was on my time. When I did go gluten-free for a little bit, it was, you know, I did, my mom helped me, but it was on my time because you gotta do something when you wanna do it and when it feels right to right. you. Right. Because as a cancer patient, if you can control something, yeah. then it's awesome. Like, oh, if I can fix my diet or if I can avoid, you know, parabens and beauty products, which I avoid, <laughs> then I will because it's just not good for you. Before we get too far along, I need to jump in again and introduce Karen Fasciano. Karen is a clinical psychologist here at Dana-Farber. She's also the director of our young adult program. And I talked with her about why people say what they say and particularly about why they give advice. Here's her take. I think when people give advice, that there's a number of different things, sort of human things that come across in that. And one is that um, it's a human way to try to control something that we can't necessarily make sense of. Um, and I think it's also a human way to make meaning out of something we can't make sense of. So if the advice we give can in some way comfort ourselves and we assume comfort the other person of, you know, well, if you do this, then we have a reason, you know, we have something that we can kind of understand this as, you know, if, if I think that, you know, nutrition or some sort of nutritional intervention is going to help you, then, you know, that gives me a way to make sense of the situation. And I think it's often, I mean, I think even in other, again, even, even in other domains of life that um, whenever someone's struggling with something, if I think back and even just, again, conversations in general, often people say what they've done in their life when they were struggling with something. Um, so it might not even be cancer, but someone who gives you some advice about eating, they've had maybe that's something they've done to help them with a physical symptom they had. Or, um, so I, again, I think it's the same, it's, it's similar in terms of people are using their own experience, but I also think they're trying to make sense of something that doesn't necessarily make sense. And somehow giving advice or kind of containing it in some way helps them to make sense of it and maybe they think it's helping someone else to make sense of it but the problem is is that there are there are some times when that kind of advice um, does fit with a person who is receiving it and can be helpful but I'd say nine times out of ten that advice doesn't fit with the person and their value system and how they're making sense of something and, uh, and then feels very jarring and, un and unhelpful. I think it's like human nature to offer up something that, because it's so emotionally hard for them that they offer up something that they feel is going to like, Band-Aid, 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 right. Band-Aid. And I think that we, having to go through it, are forced to cope with it emotionally because we can't just find a Band-Aid. Right. And so then that's where the challenge comes in. And I think that's when like your family and friends, they go through that emotional 
journey with you, but the people around you, it's just, it's a very hard emotional thing to digest. You get into this lifestyle of living scan to scan, yes. and you never plan anything too far out in advance. Like everything that you plan, there's always, well, let me plan around this based on what my scan results are. Right. And so even having that date, there's always the possibility of like option A, B, C, and D based on the outcome of that scan. So you sort of get into this mindset of, okay, I have all these potential band-aids, but I'm not going to let myself commit to one. And it's always just this juggling game of what's going to work. And so when other people externally see, oh, you have this problem, put this band-aid on, the way Becky says, it's almost hard for us to get out of mm what we've learned, that Band-Aids, sometimes you have so many options, but none of them work. The cancer community can be a tight-knit club of members who all share a common experience, but that doesn't mean that when it comes to saying the wrong thing, we're immune. So what happens when this unsolicited advice we're getting comes from one of us? Here's Kim. There's definitely a certain amount of acceptance as you get more immersed in the cancer community um, that you learn to have for people in a very similar situation who respond totally differently. And yeah. I think we all tend to get almost self-righteous about our opinions about our own treatment because of this topic, because of what people say and ways that people are trying to help or not help or make themselves feel better or you feel better. So we, we sort of hunker down and get very, I guess, yeah, self-righteous about our own treatment and what, and what works for us, but there are so many people for whom that might be very different. Right. And you really have to learn, there's a big learning curve with being open-minded about that. Yeah. And just like accepting that maybe somebody wants to stop treatment or do a treatment that you would never consider. You would never mm -hmm. consider. Right, right. And that's okay. I think cancer patients like anyone else, they have constructed some of, of their own experience and their own sort of ideas about what has helped them, some of which might be just something that happened in the context of them getting better that they're not sure if it was helpful or not, but they're attributing some of what the outcome was to that thing they did. And sometimes there's a lot of things that we don't know that are still mysterious about what can help one person and maybe not help another person. So. You know, I think it comes out of the same place of this was helpful for me, but again, the problem is, is that, you know, the match of what was helpful to someone and what is going to be helpful to someone else often is not the same because we're all different human beings and we're all made up differently and we have different biology and different meaning-making systems. So I think that that's what the challenge is with advice, whether it's from a cancer patient or someone who hasn't coped with cancer is that, you know, often it doesn't fit with another person and many times we don't know enough about that other person to know whether it's going to fit with them or not. And I think sometimes if a cancer patient was to phrase it in a different way of even saying some sort of warning shot of, you know, I don't know you, I don't know your situation, but I'm telling you, for me, 
these are the things I did that were helpful for me, then the delivery of that information feels more empathic and better, even if it's the same information. And I can say that the best conversations that I've had with fellow survivors have been ones that were that very preface happens. You know, this, yeah. this, I'm just sharing my experience. You know, it's, it, it's, it, may, it may not be right for you, but I, I you know, went to this diet and I felt great. And, and I've went to this and, you know, I've coped this way. Uh, I've started a blog. I've started doing this. I've gone running, whatever the case may be. Um, but when it comes from there and it doesn't feel like somebody trying to impose something on you that you then feel like you have to do. And you feel like, well, this worked for them. Why, why am I not trying this? That worked for them. I, sh I should try this. And it almost, for me, it, I feel pressure when somebody's giving me advice if they don't couch it the right way. I think that that's really true. And I think that that's a, it's an important communication skill in general because you should or you must or this is the miracle or, you know, I think that often makes people feel really misunderstood and not heard or listened to for who they are in their own uniqueness. And, and I think that's a really important part of you know, gaining support is for people to feel like you know, there, there's a lot of things about cancer that we don't have the answers for and all we can do is share our human experience with each other and that's very different than saying because this is what I did, this is what you should do, which more times than not, probably you know, eight, nine out of ten times just shuts down the conversation. If it's not a good fit for the person, it just shuts down the conversation instead of doing what I think people are trying to do is support each other. Part and parcel of what people say to us as cancer patients and survivors, of course, is how we react. The cancer learning curve can be really steep and it takes time to understand your diagnosis and to figure out what it means to you and how you want to deal with it. Where you are on that curve, of course, can influence how you react to the questions that are thrown at you. How you might react on the first day after diagnosis will be vastly different in all likelihood than how you react a year later or two years later. So I asked Kim and Becky about that, and then I asked them how they wanted people to respond, which is a much tougher question. Here's what they say, starting with Becky. I would say the way I react now versus before is now I would react with less fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think my biggest, if I, you were to ask me what's the worst thing people say, is nothing. They don't ask mm. me how I'm doing. So I always look normal. People always knew about it. I maybe just had a surgery or, you know, the tumor was still there. They don't, they don't ask because they're scared. Yeah. And I think Well, it's, they're scared about, uh, you're scared that, that you're going to say, I'm not doing well. Yeah, they're just scared to ask, scared yeah. to talk about the subject. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, you know, people who have maybe been through more in their life or have had cancer in their, in their life, there's less fear to face the subject. What would you want them to say? <laughs> That's a tough one. It's like, I, I, I guess, I guess when you're first diagnosed, it's less words that, and more actions. Yeah. I mean, I think I would, you know, I'm here for you, but then actually be there for me, and don't continue to ask me what I need. Just do something that right. I may need. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I've had a range of responses from almost zero facial expression whatsoever. Right. Like, 
you know something's <laughs> going on in there. Maybe they have it, or maybe yeah. their mom has it, or something. Yeah. Or maybe they're just so shocked they don't know what to say. Yeah. Regardless, I've had like almost no response, and then I've had somebody like start shouting, and the first thing she said was, "Oh my God, you can't die!" <laughs> <laughs> and she just started crying and went into hysterics, and I was like, uh, "I didn't know what to do," and so I just went into like soothing her mode. So yes. whatever, I realized that there's that whole range of experiences <laughs> and I I guess what I would want somebody to do is just to have a genuine reaction mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more reserved than that genuine <laughs> reaction but not quite as stoic as the other one yeah. you know I think so many people have like a split second of a genuine reaction and they automatically swallow it and hide it I really hate the crestfallen like oh, but yes. you're so young <laughs> <laughs> Like, and the pity, like, uh, uh. drill me with any, like, questions about my treatment, but please just don't look at me with that pity. As we talked about the things people say and the things they don't say, we ventured into an area where both Becky and Kim remembered people who were trying to be supportive and trying to be positive, but in the end were so positive that it was actually troubling. Here's what they said about that. Throughout all of my treatment, not curing it and not beating it was never an option in conversations. And did that bother you? I didn't even realize that that was the case when I was going through everything. And now objectively, when I look back, like my treatment was horrible. Like mm -hmm. everything, nothing worked. <laughs> I went through ice that I had zero response to it. I got a staph infection and I went into septic shock and almost died and was trapped in a hospital. But in it was New always going to work. Right. I never, <laughs> I never entertained that idea of what if this doesn't work because I had just had such faith that my doctors would have plan A, B, C, D, and E and I, I, I guess I knew, I knew but I didn't like know deeply and understand that I was really getting to the end of all the options. Mm -hmm, and right. it wasn't until I was having my transplant and like at the very bottom of the transplant, like experience feeling like I was on the brink of death where I was like, oh my God, I've never, nobody's ever allowed me mm -hmm. to say, this sucks, what if I don't make it? Right. It was, it was never an option for them, though, almost. <clears throat> it was never, it was too uncomfortable for them to talk about and too, too terrific hard. for them to even imagine a world where I would die or whatever. It's like, but I, people as patients need the freedom to yeah. indulge in that a little bit oh, yeah. and accept it. Yeah, and, and it's going through their heads, too. It's not as if they haven't thought about that. Right. But I think by vocalizing it, it's just like, it's too, it's too scary for them. Yeah. But you were you were talking, Becky, about um, your, your family and and what do you what do you guys call it? So my mom had a really great friend who passed away, and 
she, I actually sat with her right in the room out here when she was having a scan and she was so amazing and she taught her mother this phrase that I was allowed to tell my mother to put positive poly back in your pocket. <laughs> because <laughs> I would yell at my mom when I was feeling something or when I was like, no, the tumor is back. No, I'm not gonna have kids. And you will one day, you will one day. Okay, no, not helpful. I need to cope with this. And I think, you know, like Kim was kind of just talking about Mine was so unknown, you know, tumor was gone, tumor's back. After my second surgery, they basically told me I was cured. Then I felt something, asked for an MRI, and they said, it can't be back, it can't be back. Went in, it was bigger than it originally was, and my whole world was like upside down. And, you know, then I went on a drug, it wasn't really working. So the end of the option list was pretty much there. So it's like, well, what the hell are we gonna do if XYZ doesn't work? And I'm a very, you know, process kind of like this after this after this person and I needed to know what that next thing was and if you feel like you're gonna fall off that cliff of nothing you got to start thinking about what that can mean right right and you well, people need to give you space to feel exactly that. and a lot of times people don't because they're not in that mindset where they have to it's too hard for them to go there too I think yeah sometimes. but you were backed into a corner so you have to and then right. you just at a certain point you have to stop fighting it and you have to Allow yourself to feel the weight of it. So I posed this question to Karen, this notion of being too positive, and she came up with a really unique way of looking at it. Okay, so there's two things I'm going to say about this. The first is in response to what Kim said, and I do think we have the, the capacity as people to be in a place that I call middle knowledge, and that means you know being in a place where we know something we deeply know it, but we also deeply don't know it. <laughs> and I think that was what Kim was talking about in terms of, you know, her situation of being, you know, knowing, knowing the information, knowing that it was serious, but also wanting to not know that too. And I think it's an important concept and often very helpful to people because sometimes it does feel a little crazy making to know something and to not know it at the same time. But I think it is actually a really normal human state um, to to have both of those things and to vacillate between both of those things and to, you know, one moment be able to say, you know, I am afraid of, of this and afraid of what the worst thing might be and afraid of moving in a place I don't want to move, but I'm also hopeful and certain, um, in quotes, that that won't happen. So I think the concept of middle knowledge is really helpful and maybe helpful in terms of being um, compassionate with ourselves that we all, we all are in that place um, sometimes. So that's one thing I'd say. The second is that there's a place for positive thinking, but it's not the whole place. Um, <laughs> I think it's very helpful and important to be able to see um, that it's important to be hopeful, that hope is really, really important, and thinking about the best case scenario is really, really important. And sometimes I think people don't think about the best case scenario, and that is detrimental to their emotional health. However, I do think it's important to also hold the side of the things we're fearful of and not to give those negative things too much power or too much control or too much airspace, 
but to also know that telling ourselves that we're not feeling that way or telling ourselves that we can't talk about those things actually does increase your anxiety about them. So sometimes, you know, really just being able to say, you know, this is only a small part of how I feel, but it is something that worries me, and I do need to kind of be honest about that. And also I'm going to try to be hopeful about the things that I am hopeful about. So I'm a believer in really allowing yourself to experience the whole spectrum of feelings, not allowing yourself to give the fear too much power, but knowing that it is important to express it because if you don't express it, it comes out in other ways. It comes out in being irritable or feeling isolated or having bad dreams or I just do think it comes out in other ways. So I think giving it some airtime is important. I wanted to close by talking with Becky and Kim about advice. What advice do they have for cancer patients? What advice do they have for people talking to cancer patients? Their comments ranged all over from perspective to zen to a really important topic for cancer patients, which is control and the issue of trying to find control in a situation when you really have no control. Here's their advice, starting with Becky. I would just say don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask how someone's doing because I think more times than not, they'll appreciate that you asked and, and, and want to answer versus you just ignoring the issue. I mean, you've got all this shit going on in your life, whatever it is, they've got all the shit going on in their lives. One of them is cancer, so why don't you just ask them about it? As far as dealing with the stupid things people say, especially when like you're sitting out at drinks and I remember one night my friend had to go get a flu shot and it was like the most dramatic experience of her life. <laughs> I'm, I like, you just keep your mouth shut and think to yourself, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then you leave and don't hang out with her the rest of the night. <laughs> so I think sometimes when it's just that much of an extreme, you have to just like remove yourself from it because it is just too much for you. But the thing that I say to myself is everybody's got their own shit and it's all relative to that person. And I repeat that over and over again because yeah. you know, it's true. Yeah, and we all say stupid things. Like people say stupid things to us, but we say stupid things to people. It's terrible true. things when we're hurting. And um, my advice to other patients would be: you never truly know what somebody else is dealing with. You never know what's going on in their life. So if somebody has a negative reaction to you or one that you don't like, just remember like you don't know that their dog didn't just get hit by a car like maybe they're having a bad day right. and that's something that I would always tell myself when I was working retail getting treated terribly by customers right it's just sort of like a zen patience that you have to learn but it really applies to this and people are gonna say what they're gonna say and we may not like it but we also have no real control over it in the moment and in the uh, life living with cancer where you have control over nothing right it's it's a good exercise to let go of some of that a little bit i think you're a person before cancer you're you have a personality before cancer and sometimes it changes people sometimes it doesn't change people and you just got to find the people that are going to be productive for you this has been another episode of beyond cancer beyond cancer is produced by dana farber cancer institute you can listen to this and all episodes at DanaFarber.org 
slash podcasts. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher is. I'm Michael Buller. See you next month.